Do babies have a natural instinct to sleep? Getting a better understanding of what my partner needed and what my children really needed, that's made a huge difference. Yes, otherwise I can get a little bit overwhelmed. (laughs) Yeah, I think lots of parents can relate to that. You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt. Here's something you may not know about me. Many moons ago, in fact decades ago, I was a bridge climb leader. That's the person who takes other folk up over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It was a fabulous job and I made lots of really good friends. One friend I stayed in touch with on Facebook but haven't seen we reckon in about 20 years, is my friend called Kira. Now, we stayed in touch on Facebook, and I noticed at one point that she was pregnant for the third time. Anyway, as happens on Facebook, she was pregnant, and then I noticed she wasn't. However, there were no baby photos, and I couldn't stop wondering what had happened because we have been friends on Facebook, but I didn't feel comfortable enough reaching out and saying if something tragic had happened, and so I just felt awful about it. Anyway, the happy ending of that story is that Kira did not lose the baby. She was a surrogate, which also fascinates me. And why we are having a reunion 20 years later in the studio. Hi, Kira. How are you? Hi, good. Thank you. So I have to know, what made you decide after having two girls of your own to be a surrogate? Well, I had actually been a surrogate before. So in between my first baby and my second baby, uh, we decided to surrogate for really, really close friends. And we decided that if we gave them a baby and we ended up not being able to have another, then that would be okay. So we went into surrogacy for our very close friends of many, many years. That's a big decision, though, if it's before you've even tried to have your second child. And uh, we made that as a conscious decision. But I think something that I hadn't thought about, and we had made that conscious decision, but something I hadn't thought about was what if we didn't give them a baby and I lost the ability to carry And that became a very real possibility when the baby was diagnosed with trisomy 18. And what's that? It's otherwise known as Edwards syndrome. It's one of the major ones they test for, trisomy 13, 18 and 21. 21 being Down syndrome, 13 and 18 are considered fatal. So at 13 weeks we were diagnosed and I was asked to terminate. And how did that feel for you? It was probably one of the most difficult decisions I've had to make in my life. It's a really unusual decision because legally it was my decision, morally it was theirs. I don't think there's any other aspect where a woman is of sound mind and body that she gets to make a decision for somebody else's baby. And I had to make that decision legally, even though they were telling me they wanted me to do it. There were a whole lot of what-ifs in the back of my head. And unfortunately, medical staff... When they diagnosed as trisomy 18, they just drew the line and said, you don't have any other option, which of course there are, but I didn't feel like I had the choice to explore those options because it wasn't my baby. So let's take it back just one step because um, I don't understand a lot about surrogacy. You talk about the baby being their baby. Does it mean it was their sperm and their eggs? Correct. So you can be a traditional surrogate, which is your own egg. Or you can be a gestational surrogate, which is somebody else's. It could be theirs, it could be a donor, depending on the situation. But it's somebody else's ovum and somebody else's sperm. So somebody else's embryo, that's a gestational surrogate. If you're going to be a traditional surrogate, then you utilise your own eggs. Uh, Clinics in Australia won't facilitate traditional surrogacy yet. Uh, I think there's too many legal issues around that, but it is legal. Right. But they just don't want to... Do it. Do it. Right. So come to this point where you've had those tests, that point, 
uh, when you're pregnant is usually that point where you start to engage with the fact that you're actually pregnant. I mean, you know it up until then, but then you've reached the safe zone. That's what we see it as. Mm. Obviously, if those tests don't come back with results that are quite so tragic, but you've already made a connection because your whole body has started to change. And what was that experience like for you knowing that, as you say, it was their baby, it was your body. I mean, that wasn't the hard thing for me. I, I didn't even connect like in that motherly, protective way with my own babies in utero. It wasn't until they were out. And that's one of the reasons I knew I could surrogate because I didn't get all, oh, my baby can't wait. It was more like, can't wait to get it out. (laughs) (laughs) As most pregnant women will understand. For me, it wasn't that. It was about making the right decision for them. Um, At the ultrasound, I saw a beating heart, hands, fingers, toes, and felt relieved and I was the only one in the room that didn't pick up on there being something wrong. So it was more about the ginormous responsibility of doing the right thing for them. So having to make that decision for them, it was overwhelming and at the end of the day it was legally my decision. So I could have turned around and terminated if I wanted regardless of what they said and I could have turned around and kept going with the pregnancy regardless of what they said and I found that to be the most overwhelming thing. Was there anyone there to support you in making that decision? No. Um, I sought out counselling, but um, it's a really difficult thing. The day that I went back into the fertility specialist clinic, he was going to be our obstetrician as well. The first thing he said to me when I walked through the door was, I hope you remember whose baby this is. And I'm like, yeah, that's what makes it a thousand times harder. So, And it's a really difficult thing to understand because everybody feels so differently. And I think the one thing is that even if you feel like you're going to be pro-choice engaging in these surrogacy arrangements, that could change once you're pregnant. And and the fact that surrogacy is not something that is very easy mm-hmm. to do in Australia must mean that any kind of support around the mother is just not there. It, I had, my mother's group were really supportive. Um, they probably couldn't understand for the most part, but they were really supportive it seems appalling to me. Like, I think it's such an incredible altruistic sacrifice for many reasons, not just the physical ones, to surrogate for someone else. And yet for you to be in that position and to feel alone sounds criminal to me. I sought out uh, support groups and Australian support groups because, again, in America, it's a different system. It's not altruistic. You do get paid. So there's a kind of a different feeling there when you're being reimbursed or even reimbursed for your time. It's very different here. Um, so I sought out a support group. And as such, um, the Australian surrogacy community created a support group just for surrogates. And I found that extremely beneficial. Are you still friends with that yep. couple, the one that you... Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, we're, we're still really close. Unfortunately, they didn't go on to have a child, so they spent, you know, six figures on trying to have a baby and didn't. So that's overwhelmingly sad. And as you probably know yourself, friends without children and friends with children, their lifestyles change so dramatically that the relationship you had before children does change and does suffer because you've got completely different schedules, timetables. It it changes the dynamic of the relationship, but the surrogacy didn't so much. It was the fact that we now have children and they don't. So our lifestyles are very different. 
But yes, we're still close. And you mentioned that you did this before you tried to fall pregnant with your second yep. child. And at the time, it raised things for you about mm. whether you'd be able to fall pregnant the second time. Was that happening at the time of the termination or was it afterwards? I was petrified. I had never considered what if I lose my uterus in trying to give them a baby and don't give them a baby. For me, in my head, if I gave them a baby and we ended up with one and they ended up with one and they had a very close friendship or cousin-like or sibling-like bond, then that was enough for me and that could justify that loss. So when you did fall pregnant the second time, what was that like? Uh, my husband and I are very lucky. Um, he will tell you he has super sperm. <laughs> Don't uh, they think that? Oh, yes, they do, because it's all on them. It's yes, not on right. us at all. Not our bodies. Yet. No. Um, so we're very lucky, so I didn't really have to think about it. And for my first child, it was second time as well. So it didn't go on for long enough for me to even have to consider that. There was no sense of relief or anything like that. It was just, oh, yeah, here we go. Here we go again. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Kira Alexander, who's a mum of two and has been a surrogate twice. She's also a retiring fiery and a friend of mine from our bridge climb days when we were very young and footloose, fancy free. (laughs) We won't bring up those stories here. (laughs) But the reason why I've got Kira here after not seeing her for two decades is because I noticed um, on Facebook that she was pregnant for a third time, for what I thought was a third time. And then there was nothing after it and I was very worried and I later found out that she'd been a surrogate and then, of course, I just made her come into the studio to talk about it because I'm fascinated. As you do. I am fascinated. Um, Now, I know that you wanted to help your friends. They were close. Mm -hmm. I still think it's an incredible, incredibly generous thing to offer, regardless of how you may or may not connect with a baby in your womb. Pregnancy is not the most fun for most women. I hate it. (laughs) There you go. You hate hate it. Um, It just sounds to me like an enormous gift. So I have to say, commend you for your heart Mm. to do it, because you then went on to do it again. Now, Mm. how did that happen, especially after everything you'd been through the first time? So we had our second baby, um, and during that pregnancy, I actually started putting the word out that I might surrogate again in the hopes that I could build a relationship with someone. I was already in the surrogacy community. It's quite a small community and can be a little bit insular at times. But I thought I'd start putting the word out in the hopes that I would build a really strong bond with someone over a two-year period so that we were friends going into it. But for me, it felt like unfinished business. The first time I did it, it was just about helping friends become parents. The second time round, it was a bit of unfinished business. It's really hard to even get to the starting line with surrogacy. There's so many hoops you have to jump through, so many tests you have to go through. And then for me, the first 12 weeks of pregnancy in my first three pregnancies was the hardest. So I felt like I went through the hard yards and got no prize. So I kind of wanted to get to the end and I wanted to feel that moment of being able to give that gift. So the motivation was a little different. It was a bit about me as well, finishing what I started, but I also wanted to build a relationship. So I started putting the feelers out way back when I was pregnant with my second. Were there a lot of people reaching out to you? I mean, how did that work? The Australian surrogacy community, if you put your hand up publicly and say you want to be a surrogate, you will get inundated. If you invite that to happen, you will be inundated with responses. I had spelt out that I was pregnant, that I wanted to build a relationship, but they wouldn't read that. And then when I spelt it out to them again, they'd say, see you later, immediately. 
And so that was good at weeding people out because they're there just to utilise you for your body (laughs) and for no other reason. And the other thing is the majority of surrogates don't get paid. be lying if I said there wasn't an under-the-table system going on. I didn't partake in any of that. So for me, I was doing it properly and altruistically. So I wanted to make sure that there was a relationship there. So I continued to go to surrogacy catch-ups in Sydney and events and meeting people that way. And you ended up forming a relationship with someone. How did you decide they were the one you wanted to continue that on with? It's like dating where people (laughs) put their best foot forward. And unfortunately, sometimes that best foot is not completely real. There can be quite a few untruths, uh, exaggerations maybe um, in the way that they are. And I think in other ways, to be fair, that is who they are. But if they haven't dealt with the inability to carry, particularly the women, obviously with men, they've never been able to carry, so there's no loss there for them. But for women that haven't dealt with that, it can bring up so many issues for them. And if they're not willing to address it, it can cause massive issues. So it's kind of like dating. Did you know that going in, though? Did you know that you might have a a woman who was struggling with the fact that you were carrying their child? I, I did, I had, my eyes had been wide open the whole way through my own surrogacy and then having been part of the community and seen so many things, I thought I knew how to weed through people to get genuine people and I didn't heed the warning signs. I made excuses for some behaviours. I got not blindsided but caught up in the moment. It sounds like you liked them though, if you made excuses like that. I, I think there was a sense of um, feeling sorry for the woman in the relationship, feeling sorry for her and feeling like she was a little bit of a lost bird or a lost soul and that I could help her and she was already in her 40s. So I had a few people to choose from but the other ones were younger and I thought, okay, well, if someone doesn't help her soon, then you know she may not get the opportunity. But once a pregnancy occurred, I think there were a whole lot of issues that she didn't deal with. And how does it come out? How did that sort of um, unresolved, undealt with emotion come out while you were pregnant? Not wanting to be around me, not saying so, but it was very obvious, resenting me. I said to her on the way to an appointment, I was pretty upset and I said, you haven't been there enough for me, you haven't been supporting me. At the time, my husband was working nights. I needed help with my children who had just turned two and just turned four. I was exhausted. It was the most difficult pregnancy. I was on medication to be able to even go to work and I was working full-time shift work as well and I needed her help and I said to her, you know, you haven't been there, you haven't been supportive and she said, I'm sorry you feel that way. And I said, well, you know, my body's sore, I'm so tired, I'm exhausted, I'm not coping. And she turned around and said, well, I wish it was me. And I didn't say anything because she started crying. So for the rest of the trip to the hospital, I ended up counselling her (laughs) instead of the other way around. And when I kept inviting her over, she'd complain in counselling about not being connected enough. And so I'd invite her over, but then she'd say she was too busy So this whole time you actually have counselling and yet still that's... There's no mandatory. um, People in the surrogacy community complain that there's too many hoops. I actually think there's not enough. And that's my personal opinion. We talk about overseas developing countries being exploited. They get paid. We do not. (laughs) We can get reimbursed for definitive bills, uh, definitive bills around pregnancy, but 
not for little bits and pieces that are considered grey areas. So if you wanted a night off cooking because you're exhausted, then that could be seen as paying a surrogate to buy her dinner. Oh, dear. Pregnancy massage could be seen as paying her. Even osteo appointments to keep your body in alignment could be seen as paying the surrogate. So a lot of intended parents don't want to pay for those things that can make someone's life easier because they're worried that they'll get caught up and not get their parentage orders. I think some of them use it to not spend more than they have to as well. And in that way, an Australian surrogate, even though they're doing it altruistically, can be hugely exploited because they're giving their time, they're giving their body. I was very, very sick. They're giving up their family's time. I feel like I missed a whole year of my children's life. And, of course, I mean, this was all happening throughout the pregnancy. Mm. Did it escalate when you were close to due date? It escalated a few times. Um, it escalated right at the beginning. We discussed at length what I had been through prior and I had said to them, I'm not against medical termination, but I cannot sit here and tell you I'd go through with it after what I went through last time. I'm not against it. I'm not saying no, but I'm not saying yes either. It wasn't until after I was pregnant that they tried to get me to sign a contract that had a list of conditions that they wanted me to terminate for. Wow. And that caused a huge argument where they refused to reply to me and I was pregnant with their baby and my husband had just been diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> oh, wow, Kira. Yeah. So, you know, they went off for a weekend, I found out, and a weekend away to de-stress, and I was left there carrying their baby with a husband, newly diagnosed with cancer, with no communication at all. Again, very one-sided, where they can just up and go, but I had medical appointments to go to. I had to work. I couldn't drink away my woes. <laughs> I wanted to. Yeah, I bet. Um, so things like that. And, and what happened once the baby was born? Because normally they put you, the baby straight on your chest. What happened for you? So things were still tense at the end, but I made a really huge effort to keep things really in a decent way so that she could be there and it could be good. She came, we got to hospital at 5, uh, 5 to 5 a.m. and gave birth at 5.45. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was always agreed between the two of us that I would hand her the baby. I wanted to hand her the baby. Again, I didn't feel a connection. It was so difficult during the pregnancy that, if anything, I just wanted the baby out and given to them, particularly with how unpleasant he had been. I actually didn't want any part of him. <laughs> this sounds bad, but inside my body. Um, that was really hard for me. So when I was just about to give birth, I screamed out to the midwife, can the mum catch her own baby? And she said yes and made that happen. And uh, the mum actually said later, she said, I couldn't believe that she was in that much pain because I'm a screamer, just saying. <laughs> she was in that much pain and she said, and despite that, she was still thinking of me. And it was almost like it was the first time in the entire, and it's not nine months of surrogacy, it's more like 18 to 24 months probably more accurately 24 months of your life by the start to the finish. It was almost like it was the first time that she realised I was doing it for her. And that good feel lasted for a while um, whilst we were going through the process of paperwork and without me signing they couldn't get a birth certificate in their names. So there were, you know, the good feels stayed there for a while. Um, but I handed her her baby, which was another baby girl, and I wanted to go home but I hemorrhaged five hours later, a really fast and scary hemorrhage, where I lay in bed thinking, 
My children do not deserve to lose their mum for these people. That's all that was running through my head. If it was for our friends, I could know that they'd be taken care of and know that my husband would be taken care of. But with them, all I could think of was if something happens to me, you know, if this wasn't worth it. I was lucky that they got it stopped before I needed any surgery or anything like that. And I was going to have to stay in hospital. So they sent the mum and the baby to the maternity ward and I was going to be sent to the gynaecological ward. But my midwife, knowing the whole situation, she was a caseload midwife, thank goodness, decided that she would release me because I'd been stable and she figured that for my mental health and for me it would be the best thing. Um, I had explained to the mum that it was really, really important for me physiologically to see the baby regularly uh, because apparently the studies have been done that show that even surrogates, they need, there's a biological need to see the baby, not because you want the baby, because your body needs to see that that baby is all right. Your body needs to touch that baby because your body has been connected and feeding and growing that baby for so long. So the mum was really good at making that happen and, you know, everything was going quite well and I actually felt like she treated me the best she had treated me throughout the whole period. But I was feeling better because I didn't have a baby inside me and it was like <laughs> a little bit too late Yeah, as much as I appreciated it. And then when we spoke on Facebook, you mentioned that after about four months they shut down any communication with you. Mm-hmm. How... So you'd call and they wouldn't pick up? Or? No, nothing like that. So we agreed to see a counsellor and I was thinking about having a break from them and the counsellor recommended that that would be a good idea. Um, so I disconnected the mum from Facebook because she didn't post anything of the baby on there. So there was nothing for me to see. She didn't really use it, but there was a lot for her to see of me and I needed that space. So I did that um, and we agreed to have a break um, there was no time limit, there was no time frame, it wasn't really discussed, but I just assumed that I could then call up at some time and go, okay, can we catch up? But four months later, last time I saw the baby was when she was four months old, and then they have to apply to the Supreme Court to get parentage orders, which allows them to have a birth certificate with their names on it. So I had put the father's name on so that I didn't have to worry about Medicare or anything like that, but she needed that. And then within a couple of days of my lawyer telling me that the paperwork had gone to the Supreme Court, um, I tried to show my, staying with my best friend in Cairns, I tried to show her a picture of the mum via Facebook and I'd realised I'd been blocked. So I rang my husband and asked him to look her up and he had been blocked too. And I had sent her a couple of emails since then and one was to reimburse 50% of my dental bills because I had so much dental trouble due to being on medication and being very sick. And six weeks later after I sent that email, I got a legal letter from her lawyer basically telling me a year is long enough to heal your body, go away. Wow. <laughs> and I haven't had any correspondence since. Uh, I don't want the baby. I don't even need to have a relationship with the baby. But the idea that I birthed the baby and I could walk past her in the street and I could walk past her and not know that I birthed her, it kill that kills me. And how do you feel about everything now, the fact that you went through that experience? If you were physically able, would you surrogate again? My body was so affected by that last one, um, so badly affected. 
to the point that I'm 40 now. I need to be there for my children. I gave away a year of their life, really. I was miserable. I was cranky. I was snapping at them all the time. I wouldn't do it to them. And how do you reflect on both surrogacies now and how does it, uh, does it live on in your life today? It's been, uh, a psychologist has said to me, it's like PTSD. The thoughts are intrusive. I wish I could shut them off. I wish I could forget that I had a baby for someone else. As I said, I have not just intrusive thoughts, but also Facebook flashbacks on significant dates. I, I wish I could forget that I did it, but I can't. Um, I was really nervous coming in here, not from speaking about it, because I don't mind speaking about it, but I felt quite emotional lately. It's come up again now that I, I've got the space and the headspace to deal with it again. So it'll never go away. I don't think anyone that's had a baby, whether it be for themselves and adopted the baby or, you know, the generation that had children removed or willingly given one up, I think it never leaves you. Um, and it's not my baby, so they're quite different thoughts. It's about just wanting to know who she is and what she looks like, not wanting to parent her, because I don't, just wanting to know a bit about her. And I don't think that'll ever go away. I wish there was a happier ending to this story, Kira, but uh, what I will say is, um, again, what an incredible thing that you did, regardless of the outcome, you know, gave birth to someone else's child. That's incredible. Yeah. So oh, thank you. Thank you for speaking, even though I know, even from back in the day, you don't have a problem talking. It's still a very, <laughs> it's still a very hard thing, I think, to bring out and discuss with people. Kira, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. That's Kira Alexander, twice a surrogate, mum of two, and friend of mine from my bridge climb days. You've been listening to Kindling Conversation. If you enjoyed it, there's plenty more where that came from. Find other stories and interviews at our website. Just head to kindling.com.au.